Welcome to the latest episode of Rulebooks and Roadmaps, our FH Brussels podcast, hosted this time not by our infamous and talented Jim Brunston, but by me, his colleague, Jane Gimber, hoping to at least partially live up to the same entertaining and informative podcast that Jim so expertly moderates. Our continuing mission on this pod, as you may all be aware, is to pull off the wrapping of the EU's latest policy offerings, take out some of the screws, and have a look at what is really going on in there and why. The reason, as I'm sure you are wondering, why Jim is in the hot seat this time is due to our topic for today's podcast, the outlook for the 2024 elections and broader institutional changes. As Brussels gears up for a year of elections, nominations and appointments that will result in a recasting of personalities and policy agendas, this podcast will take a look at what we can expect what is coming up, and how this might impact the final stages of the 2019 to 2024 mandate. History has shown that the institutional change is a delicate balance between political priorities, geographical and gender diversity, national agenda setting, and institutional negotiations. Last time around in 2019, it took 50 hours of negotiations to find a compromise on the next EU institutional leadership. 2024 is not set to be any different. Questions are being raised over the probability of the Spitzenkandidaten process, the process by which parties run candidates for the role of European Commission President, will be deployed. Whispers are starting to be heard around who could be in the running for the next set of top jobs, comprising the heads of the European Commission, the European Parliament and the Council as a start. Next year's elections are also taking place against the backdrop of an electoral mandate that has seen the EU navigate a global health pandemic, the breakout of war on its doorstep, and a highly ambitious sustainability agenda, the implementation of which is not without its challenges. So to help us work through some of the open questions around next year's rapidly approaching institutional change, I'm delighted to welcome my colleague Jim to the hot seat, to dig into what is Europe's largest democratic exercise. Hi, Jim. Hey, hi, Jane. And thanks for having me on the podcast and for actually showing how it should be hosted. It's a time this was done more professionally, so it's great to see that's happening. Um, And yeah, I'm very excited about talking about the institutional changeover in 2024 uh, with the European elections at its heart and and all the steps which are going to to lead us to that important moment. So um, it's great to be here and to be be doing this the other way around uh, for once on the pod. As are we all, Jim, thank you. And I'm sure our listeners are in for a treat. As a bit of a starter for Tim, for the first question, what can we expect from the next 12 to 18 months and why does it matter so much? Well, exactly, that's the thing. So obviously the the European elections are an event they're going to take place between the 6th and 9th of June 2024. But the kind of institutional changeover is something that lasts at least a year. And it's, it's, it's a big year. Um, it's a big year. I mean, it's a year that is actually closer to 18 months. And it's a period in which we're going to see the European Parliament gradually get into election mode, um, which means a couple of different things, which I can go into. Um, it's one where the European Commission is going to be sort of going into end of mandate mode, um, which um, obviously means... Uh, for one thing, we're not going to be seeing new legislative proposals unless it's a, a matter of extreme uh, of extreme urgency. It's going to be more trying to get existing work um, uh, over the line. And we're going to see mounting speculation about who the EU's next institutional leadership 
is going to be, who, who that's going to be made up of, and that there's plenty of speculation um, about that already. So it's 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 all these things, and I mean, I'd say a couple of headline things you can you can expect is well, firstly, over the coming months, a kind of legislative race to the finish line. So. Um, the Commission has a kind of in, informal deadline of the end of June for presenting new legislative proposals. So that's the end of June this year. There is a lot of level one um, legislative proposal text still, still on the table. So you'll see an effort by co-legislators to drive stuff through still where possible. But then in tandem with that, sort of eyes lifting to the horizon of the elections and, and the agenda that is, is emerging after that. Um, we'll also, uh, by around early next year, start to see decisions from existing EU commissioners about whether they're going to run in the European elections. And already we're starting to see information out of the Parliament about existing MEPs, whether they will be running again um, or not. So there's sort of personnel movements um, at, at, at those levels. And then what we're going to see is lots of people looking quite hard at the polls to work out what the shape of the next European Parliament will be um, once that vote happens um, in June. So um, it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot going on. And I know we're going to sort of discuss it now and sort of try and break it down a bit and explain what it is and why it matters. Exactly. Thanks, Jim. And you mentioned the number of different moving parts. The phrase Europe is the sum of its parts has never been truer. So what are the different moving pieces that we should be paying attention to in the lead up to the elections next year? Yeah, exactly. So um, so as, as you mentioned, the, the European Parliament elections, enormous democratic uh, exercise. It's, it's the largest multinational democratic exercise on, on earth, as, as the European Parliament itself um, points out. So that is one piece of this. So one piece of this is we are now approaching the end of a five-year mandate for the European Parliament. That means, um, as I said, focus on legislative activity, but also MEPs starting to think about election themes. What do they want to be seen to have done in terms of policy work? What do they want to have be seen to have blocked in terms of policy work going into the election? And that's going to affect how MEPs approach particular files and the ability of the Parliament to do business with the, the Council, so with the Member States, in, in, in adopting legislation. So that is one thing. Um, the election is about electing individual MEPs. It's also a test of strength of Europe's different political forces. And um, so this is both in terms of the political groups in, in the European Parliament and what weight they will have in the next mandate, um, and also, in a way, a test of their kind of broader brands, the, the pan-European political parties which um, from which those groups are, are drawn. So this is the, the European People's Party, the Party of European Socialists, the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe, uh, just, just, to name, just to name three of them. Um, so you've both got this, if you're sort of looking at this and you're someone who engages with the EU institutions because EU regulation affects your business, for example, you're both going to be wondering, well, what's going to be happening to individual MEPs? And you're also going to be wondering, well, what's the political shape of the next parliament going to be in terms of these political groups? Um, and how is that going to affect the agenda? And that's one part of the year of change. Now, the year of change is also uh, a kind of broader institutional renewal. And, um, uh, and that means along with this big, open, transparent, democratic exercise, a, dare I say, it's slightly less transparent exercise in picking people to run some of the European institutions. And so questions in, in Brussels at the moment um, are who is going to be leading the European Commission um, beyond the end of the current mandate of the Commission, which, which is due to end at the end of October 2024. Plenty of speculation. Uh, von der Leyen, sorry, Ursula von der Leyen, the current European Commission president, will seek a second term. Uh, not yet confirmed at time of recording. But... 
also there is the presidency of the European Council, as, as you mentioned, Jane, and uh, Jean-Michel there is actually in, ineligible to run again. He's done two terms, so um, we need a new president of the European Council. So um, that is sort of what I would sort of think of as being the real sort of inner heart of the top jobs discussions, but of course there are other top jobs as well. There is the high representative for foreign affairs, um, which often becomes part of this discussion, which is a discussion very much EU leaders level about who's going to hold these top jobs. Um, and um, there's also the position um, you mentioned of, of president of the European Parliament, which is very much something that's in the Parliament's purview, but can also become part of the broader top jobs picture. And um, while I think this is a discussion very much among EU leaders, it is also a discussion um, very much um, linked to the European Parliament as well, both in terms of like how the results influence the strength of political forces and very directly by the fact that uh, an incoming European Commission president and their team need European Parliament approval to take office. So, so those are those are those are the, the main pictures. Um, so there's different ways to slice and dice this, as, as you can probably tell by how long and rambling my answers are. But you know, one way to slice it is in terms of institutions, and so there is obviously big things happening in terms of both the Parliament um, and the Commission, and also leadership of the European Council. And um, there are also things happening uh, in terms of agenda. Uh, there's also things happening um, in terms of political shape of the parliament and there's things happening in terms of individual personalities. So, um, yeah, it's a lot. Brilliant. Thanks, Jim. And as you said, everybody does have their eye on the top candidates, but there are a number of other appointments that are impactful for the next agenda that we need to keep an eye on. We're also starting to see the rubber hit the road when it comes to implementing some of the policies from this commission. Let's take the example of sustainability. What do you see as being the driving forces behind the next commission in terms of possible themes? Yeah, this is, this is one of the areas where I think this gets really exciting, is you're already to start, starting to see that gear up, um, both in terms of the European Commission, for example, putting out quite forward-thinking um, uh, documents, forward-thinking strategies, which clearly are designed to have a shelf life going beyond um, the end of this mandate. But of course, because we're going into an election campaign and we're going into this period of change, you're also seeing lots of efforts to, to shape the agenda and, and that, will, that will intensify over coming months. So it's, it's perfectly normal, for example, for industry associations in Brussels to do manifestos for, for the next commission um, or, or, or letters to um, incoming commission presidents, for example, to basically say, look, this is what we think should be the blueprint for, for our sector. So in a way, it's a kind of very sort of, um, uh, I'm trying to think what the right word is here, but very sort of kind of like, in a way, almost like an open architecture where we've got lots of lots of people feeding in. I mean, another another obvious example is the political parties going into the elections will have um, manifestos um, setting out agendas for the next mandate. And when it actually comes to deciding if they're going to back a, a reappointed Ursula von der Leyen or um, a, um, a new potential commission president, so a new commission president uh, designate, um, they they are going to want to know what that commission what that commission president or would be commission president's um, political priorities are going to be and they are they are they are presented to the parliament before um before a confirmation vote um, so there are lots of sort of different avenues of, of agenda setting going on and, and lots of lots of opportunities um, to um, to to find ways to engage in that in that process we're already starting to see some themes shaping up um, uh, just a couple of things I'd, I'd point to. Um, one is um, the European Commission's economic security strategy, which is a, a new strategy produced by the Commission, which is building on um, kind of like a steady drumbeat over, over recent months, really. It, it, it's what incarnates the new policy of de-risking, as, um, as the Commission puts it, uh, as, as regards, um, as regards uh, China and also other strategic um, dependencies that the EU might have. 
And in a way, it's, it's kind of setting out a, a blueprint for how you continue developing this external facing single market policy that we've seen more and more of in, in recent years as the EU really tries to sort of harness the, the weight of the single market. So we've seen that, for example, in, in EU-wide regulations, um, EU-wide rules regarding uh, foreign direct investment screening, regarding foreign subsidies, regarding access to the EU's procurement market, um, regarding a, a border levy on carbon intensive products to ensure a level playing field, so, so CBAM. Um, this is going to be the next chapter of that. So that is clearly not something the Commission is putting out now so that everyone forgets about it next year. It's clearly something designed to set the, to set the agenda going forward. We're also starting to see some, some sort of bottom-up pressure on the Commission in various areas that will influence what the next mandate looks like. And, and Jane, you mentioned sustainability. I mean, obviously, we're seeing now in countries such as Germany, the Netherlands, a sort of backlash against aspects of environmental policy, um, which might give the Commission cause for thought, cause for thought. Um, in how it wants to shape its response to the climate emergency going into the next mandate. So this is already coming up, and it's it's in some ways an institutional process, in some ways very much a democratic debate, and in, and in some ways a question of bottom-up pressure. What is your outlook for the Spitzenkandidaten process? Um, so the Spitz process, I, this is kind of a really interesting invitation to talk about what happened before. Um, and so seeing as... Um, seeing as I'm getting older, we all are. Um, I can talk. I'm fond of talking about the past. And uh, so, uh, last time around, after the last European elections, uh, as you mentioned, EU leaders found it very difficult to um, settle the Commission presidency and the border top jobs package around that. And that was for a bunch of reasons, um, which, while I'm fond of reliving them, I won't go into in, in great depth um, because. I appreciate our listeners have busy lives. Uh, but um, in essence, it boiled down to a couple of things. One was uh, an extremely um, uh, unusual confluence of vacancies where the European Council presidency was up for discussion at roughly the same moment that the Commission presidency, the Council presidency and the Parliament presidency um, were. We had a Commission president who wasn't seeking reappointment and uh, we had a um, European Central Bank president coming to the end of their non-renewable eight-year term um, in the shape of Mario Draghi. And so that put a lot of balls in the air. And the other was it became this kind of trial of strength over the Spitzenkandidaten process, um, where in essence EU leaders tried to see whether they could accept having one of the prominent Spitzenkandidaten as um, commission president, and ultimately kind of concluded they couldn't. I mean, there was a sort of um, a, an attempt... Um, to see if uh, Manfred Weber, who was the Spitzenkandidat for the EPP, Spitzenkandidat, sorry, for the EPP, uh, see whether he would be acceptable. Various reasons um, didn't get the necessary support. Um, then there was an attempt to sort of build a package around Franz Timmermans, who'd been the centre-left um, Spitzenkandidat in the, in the elections. Um, and that really was tested to destruction at a very long summit, um, where ultimately, again, necessary... Um, support could not be found. Um, just to recall, Commission President is, is an appointment that um, ideally you make by consensus of national leaders, but if necessary, you can do through a qualified majority vote around the summit table. But in the end, um, they uh, moved to a different strategy, which was to really put at the centre of the package the idea of Ursula von der Leyen, who was then Germany's Defence Minister, as Commission President, and, um, and also really to sort of present that alongside Christine Lagarde being appointed as European Central Bank President. And to have that, I'd sort of argue that is sort of the hard the hard core of a package and then other elements were put in place around that, such as Charles Michel as European Council President. Um, the um, upshot was a blow for the Spitzenkandidaten system because um, Ursula von der Leyen, notably, 
had not run in the European elections. Um, and that left sort of a slightly sticky situation after that with parts of the European Parliament. So the question is, what's going to happen from here? And the interesting thing is now, of course, is, is well, if we're heading into a, a cycle where we're actually going to be having a European Commission president seeking renewal, that's an incredibly different picture to the one we were presenting last time. And it's, it's also interesting to note that the one time the Spitzenkandidaten process did work and delivered a Commission president was one also where the Commission president wasn't seeking renewal. Uh, it was, it was uh, Jose Manuel Barroso after two terms. So... Um, it's funny how each one of these exercises is not exactly the same as what we've seen before. You know, so there's some similar challenges. There's some, some high stakes. Um, there are reputations that are going to be burnished. There are egos that are going to be bruised. But um, this is going to be slightly different this time around. So, Jim, what would you say are the key things to look out for from the European Parliament over the coming months? No, it's, it's really good to to break this down because obviously there is a lot going on with the with the elections and the institutional changeover. So breaking it down by institutions a really cool way of doing it. With the Parliament, there's kind of like a road that leads us to, to the elections. And so over the coming months, um, very much focus on um, getting core legislative files over, over the line, delivering um, on priorities, um, not least because you want to show citizens, show voters that you have delivered tangible things during this mandate and and a lot's already happened in this in this mandate, but there's there's draft legislation on the table that there's more work to do. So we want to drive that forward. However, as we get closer to the elections, um, one interesting thing is it could be more difficult for the parliament in some ways to strike legislative deals um, because um, you know sometimes you have to strike hard bargains where you don't get everything you you want, and you have to just accept things for the for the greater whole and accepting setbacks in legislation or or backing things as part of a broader deal but elements of a broader deal that perhaps you're not a fan of it becomes it becomes just politically more complicated when you're right you're, you're facing straight into your your date of destiny with the voters when that date of destiny with the voters is, is right around the corner um but nonetheless, for the time being, legislative work continues, but we will see progressively in the early months of 2024, Parliament really getting into election mode um, before it rises um, to go um, for, for, for politicians to go and campaign um, in, the, in, in the elections. But there's this sort of kind of journey, like a sort of plane taking off um, between now and then. And a lot will be going on that's sort of outside of that legislative track. Um, there's going to be political groups preparing their manifestos, so we'll see that aspect of agenda setting for the next mandate, so, so political groups or pan-European political parties um, preparing those, e even though the elections are fought by national parties, member state by member state, they're of course grouped together in these, in these pan-European families, which then um, roughly convert into political groups in, in, in the parliament. Um, and also we're going to discover whether um, existing MEPs, so perhaps you know, some of the parliament's bigger personalities, um, are staying or, or going. Um, so, um, but also we're going to learn that whether individuals are intending to run again or not, because individual lawmakers can have a big impact on, on the final shape of, of, of EU legislation in roles as, as, as rapporteur um, or shadow rapporteur, as, as well as other roles in, in the parliament. And so everyone will be on the lookout for that as well. Like who, is, who, is, who is potentially staying? Who is definitely going because they're not running? And so that is also going to be part of the story leading up to the elections. So that's a bit what we're on the lookout for with the Parliament. Thanks, Jim. Not to name the infamous questers as well, who will also be decided after the European Parliament elections. If we turn over to the European Parliament's neighbour, the Commission, just across the road here in Brussels, what would be the milestones to look out for from a Commission point of view over the next coming months? Yes, so for, for the Commission, it's a really interesting one because um, the Commission has 
uh, obviously got the, the right of legislative initiative. It's got this huge agenda-setting power. But it doesn't make sense to put legislation on the table right before you go into elections. And, and, and um, con the convention is you don't really do that. So the commission has this internal um, cutoff of um, the end of June 2023 to, for, for kind of normal business in terms of putting legislative proposals on the table to happen. Now you can go ahead and put legislation on the table after that, sorry, draft legislation on the table after that um, in response to pressing needs. But the convention is that now the focus should be shifting onto getting existing um, draft legislation agreed, so securing political agreements um, among the, the, the co-legislators. Now, now, something else happens with the commission as well, which is um, commissioners start thinking about their, their future if, if they're not already. And typically, um, some commissioners will be, uh, will be running in the European Parliament elections. So the, so the commission as well is, again, has this sort of road, road that leads up to the, to the elections and, and beyond, because the end of the commission mandate um, is um, normally, or normally will be the end of October 2024, although an existing commission can continue in office longer if a new commission is not ready to come in and, um, and replace it. Uh, but the, the kind of road is one where the commission's role starts to shift uh, a bit. So one, obviously, is that it doesn't make much sense for the European Commission to be putting lots of new legislative proposals on the table right before the end of its mandate. The conventions, it doesn't. So there's this informal kind of cutoff of, of the end of June 2023, when really, as a matter of course, the Commission should not be making new legislative proposals. It should be focusing on getting on, on helping the co-legislators strike political deals on what, what's already out there the draft text that are already out there. Um, it does, of course, it's still got its right of initiative. If it feels the need to make a legislative proposal in response to a pressing need, it, it can make one. But typically, that sort of role starts to shift a bit. And then the Commission's political college, so all the national commissioners, they're sort of thinking about their future. And so typically, in any given institutional changeover, um, there will be some commissioners who, who stay. There tend to be some retention where the same personalities, the same people stay. But there's inevitably going to be quite a lot of changeover. And um, we might see some commissioners choose to run in, Europe, European in the European Parliament elections. There's been plenty of examples of that happening in the past. Um, and, um, and then continuing their career in, 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 in the European Parliament um, uh, you know, after their mandate as commissioner uh, finishes. Um, and also you could see um, commissioners starting to think about a, a return to national politics or, or, or other international positions. So there's just this sort of sense of um, getting ready for the next for the next steps with some commissioners um, departing. So you start to see sort of like sort of mini reshuffles, um, sort of patching up of the team um, as you get into this final phase, whereas we've had a kind of fairly constant team throughout throughout this this, this mandate. Um, and a couple of departures, including one recently, um, uh, Maria Gabriel, um, going back to national politics in Bulgaria. There's, there's been a high degree of constancy in the team, which is typical, but that starts to sort of fragment a bit as, as we get as we get closer um, to, to the elections. Um, and then, then this all then interlinks with the top jobs discussion and um, the decision by the European Council on a candidate to be the next Commission president and then their approval process before the Parliament and then the approval process for their political team made up of all the national nominees to, to be commissioner so it's 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 a, it's a process that runs into the latter stages of, of next year and it and those months after the elections are critical because that's when we learn about who national commissioners are going to be that's when we learn what portfolios the commission president would like to give to them and that's when we learn are they going to survive their parliament hearing process so i suppose the thing i wanted to underline with this is is that the 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 european election year this this year we've been talking about this institutional renewal there is 
the elections are at the heart of it, but there is, and the elections are connected to so many other elements of it, but there is so much going on and it runs way beyond um, the 6th to 9th of June. So contrary to what some may think, it, it will be anything but quiet between June and November 2024. No, exactly. exactly. It, it's a formation process where basically we're going to be seeing like the sort of the, the magma of, of Brussels kind of coalesce into a new shape, a new, a new continent, and, and we're, we're all going to be learning how to navigate it. Well, thanks very much, Jim, for giving us so many insights into what is going to be a period of significant change uh, and political dynamics coming up next year. I'm sure our listeners can't wait to hear what else is going to happen in the year of change. On that note... Thank you very much and speak to you soon. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jane, and thanks again for showing how this podcast should be hosted. Thank you.